Hey, thank you for listening to another episode of Life and Health Matters with Dr. Shakib, and this is your host, Malmak Shakib. In this episode, I interviewed Dr. Adi Jaffe, who has a PhD in psychology. All of the information, how you can get a hold of Dr. Jaffe and his work will be in the show notes. One thing that I appreciated about this interview um, was the fact that it definitely changed my perspective on the subject of addiction. And I think there's a stigma, an unfair stigma attached to the subject of addiction. Another thing I want to bring to your attention is that addiction is not to drugs, street drugs and alcohol. You can be addicted to um, prescription medication. We all have heard about opiates and how there's such a high rise in the number of addiction to a number of people with addiction to this to these types of drugs. There is addiction to sex, food, video games, you just name it. So instead of putting a label to that individual and start treating them like an outsider, how can we change that? Clearly the standards of care have not worked and it is time to look at things differently. I really, really appreciate Dr. Adi Jaffe's work about addiction and how he's making a huge change in the lives of those who are involved in it and the helpers. If you have any questions or comments, please direct them via email to drspodcastshow at gmail.com. Subscribe to the podcast, share the podcast. And if you don't mind, rate the podcast. I appreciate you listening. And with that said, let's proceed and listen to my interview with Dr. Adi Jaffe. All right, Dr. Adi, welcome. I'm so excited to have you on my podcast show. Thank you so much for having me. Oh my gosh, it's like dream come true. I tell you, I've been following you for so long and I came across your interview on a a different podcast and I was so impressed with what you had to say. It really changed my view on the subject of addiction. So since I already had that advantage, why don't you introduce yourself and let the listeners know more about you? Thank you. Thank you so much for that. Uh, I can't wait to hear what podcast you heard me on. Um, (laughs) But yeah, I um. How do I introduce myself? You know, this is always such an interesting question, kind of like, how do we get started? Um, I am an addiction and mental health expert. Uh, I have a PhD in psychology from UCLA with an emphasis in neuroscience, and I've been either studying or working in the addiction field for uh, 11, 12 years now. Um, I'm 43 years old. I'm a father of three amazing children and a husband to my amazing wife, Sophie. And that's where life is now. But before all that happened, um, I was a meth addict and a drug dealer here in L.A. I ended up um, having to go to jail and serve time. That was before I got all the schooling done. And so my life straddles these kind of two different realities, uh, what I call version 1.0 of my life and now version 2.0 that, you know, is a really, it's a pretty interesting place to come from. And I think really gives me an advantage when working with people who are currently struggling with their addictions. 
Absolutely. So just to um, uh, first answer the, the first question, it was Mind and Body Green, oh. which is my favorite podcast, probably one of my favorites. Great. Uh, I get a lot of valuable info from mm. them. So that was the one that I listened to. And then I went, um, I looked you up and I believe... Um, uh, the, the, I think you're doing the podcast with Sophie, your wife. Yes. Uh, so I've been listening to that as well. And I have definitely referred, uh, quite a few people, uh, to you one way or another. So, uh, and I have a bunch of questions, uh, that, um, you know, I think is a fair game to ask, especially Please. when people, I, I hope that people who are listening here are just listening because they don't have a personal experience with mm. the challenges involved with addiction. However, there is a very good chance that those who are interested in the subject have a special connection one way or another. So the number one thing that comes to my mind is, um, and I already know the answer, but I was under the assumption that drug addicts are um, basically, um, they, they, they come from a bad neighborhood, mm. they come from uneducated uh, household, parents are not involved, they're probably um, in some kind of a bad situation themselves. Sure. Either that or the other extreme where the kid is spoiled, rotten, everything is provided, mm. and then they just, they're just they just bored, they're hanging out with the wrong crowd. So sure. when I listened to your podcast interview, I realized I have a full, I have a really wrong idea about mm. addiction. So um, let's, let's shatter the stigma first. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And thank you. I mean, thank you for bringing up such an important initial topic. You know, first of all, your open-mindedness is the most interesting part of this for me. Because a lot of people, when they hear that conversation, I get this on Facebook, for instance, all the time, especially if they're not the one struggling or if they used to struggle years ago, but they beat it and uh, and they beat it using kind of a more old fashioned system, they look at me like I'm crazy. And wouldn't it be nice if we could define addiction in a really simple way? They're either people who are poor and had drugs all around them and their parents, you know, smoked crack in the in the bathroom or they're super wealthy and they you know, they're just lost and bored and have all the money in the world. And so they don't know what to do with themselves and they use all the time. Um, that would be nice because at least it would be easy to define who it is we're looking for. But the reality is having now worked with thousands of people and heard from thousands, many, many thousands more. The reality is there is literally no specific kind of person to whom addiction is limited. It's just there is no group. And what do I mean by that? First of all, we're going to remove the term addict and alcoholic from the equation for a second because I've been talking about this for seven, eight years, but there's research, pretty solid research now that shows that those those terms are not useful. They're actually uh, harmful for the people that you're using them against, I'll say. Um, and we'll get into that a little bit more in a second here. But your next door neighbor who you see going to the car every day could be struggling with drug or alcohol or some other addiction. Um 
your niece, your nephew, your husband, your, uh, your wife, your children could be struggling. And if not now, then later. And, and the reason I say that is stigma is the idea that there is this group of people, these others who are different than us and worse off than us. And so the reason it's so painful and so useless in the context of what we're talking about here is the moment we separate ourselves, what we're saying is, well, I'm normal. And then there's those other people, those addicts and alcoholics, they're different. It's not true. It's never been true. But unfortunately, because of stigma and shame, even people who struggle with addiction have accepted this non-truth for so long. And what we know is this is part of the main reason why we've never been able to beat addiction as a society. One, because if we think that there's a special group of people that suffers, we don't actually take a real deep look at ourselves. Secondly, the moment we tell people, hey, you're an addict or an alcoholic and you've got this condition that you will never get rid of, there's a sense of hopelessness and um, and helplessness that sets in, which greatly reduces number one, the number of them that come into treatment. Because think about it this way. If somebody told you, hey, you've got a condition you're never going to beat, why even go get help? Um, and then once they go get help, huge failure rates. Um, so the, you, know, you can look at these numbers and they look different depending on who you ask and, and what study you look at. But somewhere between 5 to 15% of people who go into treatment um, succeed long-term. But only about 10% of people who struggle with addiction even go into treatment. So that means that on average, about one out of 100 people who need help actually succeed given the current system we have. Which means a failed system. I mean, I would argue that when 99% of people who need help fail given a system, then yeah, the system's failed. Uh, so are you saying, Dr. Adi, that... Uh... You know, when it comes to alcoholism, oh, it's a disease, it's a genetic disorder, and people who have, let's say, a history of alcoholism in their family, they're very concerned maybe the future generation within that family ends up with, with alcoholism as an example. Yeah. Are you saying that um, that is not the case? So... Great question. I have a book. It's called The Abstinence Myth, and I go into it a lot more in detail there. So if people are interested, but I'll, I'll go into some detail here. Um, look, it's not that biology doesn't play a role. But we're living in an age right now where we seem to believe that everything is biological. Um, <laughs> your emotions, your personality, uh, what shoes you like and and who you date. We think it all has to do with biology. And we left an age where we thought it was all psychological. So essentially, you know, if you talk to people 20, 30, 40 years ago, before neuroscience had really picked up steam and genetics had picked up steam, then psychology was the ruling field. And it was like, okay, if you've been through trauma or you didn't connect to your parents the right way when you were younger and your attachment issues were strong, that would lead you to problems. Um, then biology came out. We learned about neuroscience and about the brain, and it was really exciting, right? We learned about neurons and the fact that every time you use drugs, dopamine gets released and all these other things. And so we went, ah, it's actually biology. And I would get into fights with people all the time where they, the only thing they would want to talk to me about is because I, I studied neuroscience, uh, behavioral neuroscience in the psychology department at UCLA. And they would say, well, but is addiction mostly biology or is it mostly psychology? 
And I would say, what do you mean? They said, I, I, we understand both are connected, but is it like 60, 70% biology or is it 60, 70% psychology or how does it go? And I go, at the time when I was learning, my answer was that biology was probably playing the bigger role, like 50 to 60% in everybody's issue. What I realized since is we've been asking the wrong question. So in my book, I talk about it. There are four factors that I've seen relevant in everybody's addiction. And those are biology, psychology, environment, and spirituality. Now, that concept by itself is not new. Even in most treatment centers, when people go in, they go through this assessment. And this assessment is called the biopsychosocial assessment. Um, what does that mean? That means that people are assessing their biological, psychological, and environmental factors that led the people to them. Here's the difference. First of all, they, they don't always include spirituality. We can get into that here in a little bit. But the thought was that, yeah, we're assessing everybody's needs. But for all people with addiction, either biology is the most important thing if you're in the biological camp and you believe in genetics and, and neuroscience – or the psychology is bigger and it's all about trauma and early life attachment. Or environment is the most important thing. And there are examples of really amazing people in each one of those fields, like Gabor Mate in the trauma oh, yeah, and psychology field, right? Um, Nora Volko. Absolutely. Nora Volko and, and, uh, and um, Ken, Kenneth Blum, who discovered the uh, D2 receptors and all these people on the biology side. And then on the environment side, there are people. Stanton Peel is one example. Bruce Alexander, who's the guy who did that Rat Park study that everybody's really excited about all the time. Each one of those people, if you talk to them, says, well, no, environment is the most important thing. Or, well, no, trauma is the most important thing. Or, no, biology is the most important thing. So here's what I added to the conversation. And that is the fact that there is no factor that is most important in addiction. We've been looking for a silver bullet. We've been looking for the thing that is the most important in addiction. Some people think it's biology. Other people think it's psychology. Some people think it's environment. What I'm saying is the most important factor is different for every single person that we see in front of us. We have to stop pretending that there's going to end up being one factor that is most important for everybody. So, for instance, you mentioned this about, you know, again, I'm going to put – I always put alcoholics or addicts in quotes because – in air quotes because that term doesn't mean anything, right? Um it's just a name that we gave a group of people. But let's say somebody had parents who had real addiction problems, right, and drank a lot and used a lot of drugs. Their biology was affected, their psychology was affected, and their environment was affected, right? All three factors are relevant. People think to themselves, well, my parents were addicts, quote unquote, so I've got the addict gene. Yeah, but you also grew up in an environment where drugs and alcohol were really prevalent. You also probably were somewhat neglected, and so your psychology was affected. It's really hard to tease apart the individual components of that. The biological impact that people are talking about has to actually do with genetics or with your body or with epigenetics, which is something if we want, we can talk about a little bit, but it's essentially the way your stress and your environment affect your genetics. Like that's what we are supposed to mean by your biology caused your addiction. So in that sense, you know, my entire recommendation for everybody that I work with is to actually do an assessment. So I, I literally say to people, like, sit down and do an analysis. How much is your biology relevant? How much is your psychology relevant? How much is your environment? And then spirituality, which I consider the idea of having a sense of purpose and really feeling like 
what you do matters in the world and you're connected to something bigger than yourself. Each one of those factors is important. And what I found time and time again is people who have been to many, many other approaches or have tried a lot of things in the past, when they hear that explanation go, oh my God, now I can understand this better. Now I can understand that it's not all about my body and my biology. Instead, there are actually a lot of different things that have brought this on for me. And and they relax a little bit, which is really, really nice. You know, it's really nice to be able to not fight the explanation that people give you. In my experience, not everybody's, but my experience is that when you tell somebody they're an addict or an alcoholic, their first response is to pause and to resist and to maybe even run away. Yeah. You know, you, you mentioned epigenetics, which um, is such a huge, huge concept that maybe many don't know about. Because at yeah. the end of the day, not everyone is a round peg to fit in a round hole. We're all, no. We all have our own stories. And it really doesn't matter, in my opinion, what contributed. That's part of the past. Mm. It's what are you going to do with your reality today to go forward the way you wish to live your life. So then the number one question that comes in the mind of people around these uh, circumstances is as a parent, let's say, as a parent of a child with that I'm going to call out of control because I think that fits it better. But then again, when I listen to that podcast, this is my past history uh, choosing the word here because I think even that is inaccurate. Uh, because you said um, whatever the addict for, and again, I'm using the word addict for lack of a better sure. word, uh, is addicted to brings pleasure. And we're talking not a pleasure like um, um, it's just a They're luxury not pleasure. Not necessarily yeah, fun. it's not a luxury pleasure. It's more of a brings peace to them. So it happens to be that it's in a bottle or it's in um, whatever other kind of drug it is. And unfortunately, I think there are plenty of people who are addicted to prescription medication sure. <laughs> more than street medication. But we don't talk about it that way because there is some, I mean, once again, the society's given us uh, an input beyond what reality is so if if we if i listen to enya or if i listen to some soft music and i get pleasure out of it then someone comes to me and says you can't listen to it it's like why not it brings me peace so if if that drug or alcohol brings peace to the life of the person that's consuming it then we as outsiders will no longer look at it as a negative thing. It's more of a, okay, you're picking something that is really not good for you. So sure. Here's, what here's one the, difference. Here's yeah. one difference that I just want to point out. Because mm-hmm. you're right that the past is past. Um, but here's the difference. If when you were a little kid, every single time your parents fought each other and screamed at each other, they turned Enya on because they didn't want you to um, hear them screaming. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so Enya's music got connected to resolving conflict for you, right? 
when there's conflict, I put Enya on and I ignore the conflict so I don't have to pay attention to it. Enya is now not just something that brings you momentary pleasure. And there are two different versions of the pleasure that you mentioned. There's the positive reinforcement. I feel good because of this. And there's the negative reinforcement. This thing reduces my pain. Two different things. So oh. if you say to yourself, okay, there's conflict. I can't handle conflict. When there's conflict, I go to Enya. If somebody takes away your, um, your Enya, you have a problem because you never learned how to deal with conflict. So yes, in the future, you need to learn how to deal with conflict because otherwise you're going to keep relying on Enya. And if somebody just took Enya away, you're kind of screwed. Um, next time somebody wants to pick a fight with you and you go to turn, you can't listen to Enya. And now the anxiety, now the stress, now the pain of the conflict comes front and center. So for the vast majority of people that I deal with over time, right? There was, there's the way that they got to learn to use their alcohol, their drugs, the porn, the food, whatever that is. And for whatever that is, even like some people are born with a biological system that is more anxious. And they learned at some point, just somebody gave them a drink and they went, oh, when I drink, I feel less anxious, right? If somebody takes away the alcohol and they never learn how to meditate or never learn how to do yoga or never learn how to do other things that reduce their anxiety, they don't have other coping strategies. So when you take away the thing, not only do they have to now stop the behavior, that the addictive behavior, they now have to learn how to deal with all the things that the addictive behavior was helping with. So it's not true for everybody, but for a lot of the people that I meet, that's one of the hardest things for them is what do I do now? Exactly. And what can people, the supporting people within that family or, you know, among the friends, what can they do? Because I, I have come across a lot of parents whose children are troubled with um, drugs, prescription and street drugs. And they, for one, they blame themselves. Yeah. And then they start getting mad because this person is behaving inappropriately and actually in a very mean way and I always I mean not that I'm a psychologist by no means I'm a psychologist but it's common sense I tell them you're looking at someone that you think you know but you don't know what's happening on the inside and you're judging them on the outside when in reality you don't know what's happening in their mind how their brain is processing things so you need to put the judgment aside and Start hearing the person, so to speak. What is behind that action that this person is trying to convey? Most of the times, it's anger. It's frustration. And they probably get mad at themselves once they sober up because, like, why in the hell did I talk to my mom like that? <laughs> mm. You know? Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot. I mean, there's a lot to unpack in what you're saying right now. So I'm starting. I just had a workshop a few. I want to say we held it a month ago but it's still available online. You can look it up. Uh, it's called Family SOS. I and just did this morning. That oh, amazing. seemed like, uh, yeah, I, you know, I'm going to, in the show description, I'm going to put all of your information there. Love it. But I thought that was such a good topic or yeah, title so, to begin with. But so that, we're going to yeah. start a whole program, actually, mm -hmm. which will be like a two-month program. But mm -hmm. I wanted to, as soon as, because I get asked to do things like this all the time, and I said, you know what? screw it. I'm going to sit down. I'm going to plan a two hour workshop because the thing you're talking about right now is really important. Um, so many people believe because they've been told that the person in front of them has a problem with alcohol or has a problem with drugs. 
They don't have a problem with alcohol or drugs. They have a problem with life for whatever reason. Um, they're using the alcohol and the drugs as a way to deal with the problem with life. And so one of the things that I found that is the most helpful is um, helping them deal with the thing that, that they're actually struggling with. Um, what do I mean by that? So you, you mentioned anger and frustration. Absolutely. Although anger and frustration are the next, the next level down, um, they come from somewhere. So like they may have, they may have social anxiety. They may have, um, feelings of, of approval from where they are with work. You know, there's something else going on in their life that they're not happy with. Does that make sense? Yes, 100%. Yes. And and that's what they're trying to seek. Um, but the problem is that... Sorry, can you hold on for a second? I know I'm, I'm doing an interview right now. I, I only I can go get, you know, the 20, but I'm not doing an interview. Right? Okay, thank you. I'm so sorry. <laughs> that's okay. That this guy just wouldn't, like, he just kept wanting to talk to me and would not accept... Like me saying something different. Um, I, I, sorry about that. <laughs> That's okay. I try. I tried to send him out without having to say that. Um, so, <laughs> so there's this underlying issue that people are struggling with, and the family's been told, and I talk about this a lot in my book. Everybody sees the alcohol, right? Like, you see your wife drinking too much, and you think to yourself, she has to stop drinking. The problem is. It's been 10 years that the relationship has been a nightmare and the wife started drinking in order to deal with the fact that her relationship is a nightmare. The struggle is not around the alcohol. There's some struggle around the alcohol right now, but the relationship has to be fixed. Um, the the reason needs to be removed is what you're saying. Yes. Get to the cause. Yes. So there are two pieces that I really recommend for family members. Again, I go through this in a lot more depth in the SOS um, workshop. But A... You have to change your perception of what the person you love is struggling with because the reason they resist every single time you come to them and say, hey, you have to stop drinking is not because they don't want to stop drinking. They would love to show you that they don't need to drink anymore. But every time they stop and they've tried dozens of times, life catches up and then they've never learned how to handle that element of life. And they try and they try and they try and they try to hold on and eventually they go, screw it. I'm going to go drink again. And then you look at them and you say, you see you couldn't stop drinking. But what's actually happening is they don't have the coping tools, biological, psychological, environmental coping tools to deal with what's going on inside. And so they keep going back to the one thing they know. The analogy I always give when I talk about this is imagine if you had a physical therapy office and somebody, uh, their legs didn't work. And so you were saying, hey, uh, you should come in for physical therapy. We can help you learn how to walk again. And they go, oh, my God, that would be amazing. But then you say to them, um, the only thing is you can't bring your wheelchair or your crutches or your cane to the office. Um, you have to leave it at home. And they go, but I can't get to you if I don't have my wheelchair. I, my legs don't work, so I can't get to you for the wheelchair. To me, that's my analogy of what we do to people in the addiction field. That's why I call my book The Abstinence Myth. We have told everybody who struggles with alcohol, drugs, food, sex, whatever it is they're struggling with, that they have to be able to commit to not drinking or they have to be willing to stop all their drug use before they actually get the help. 
And they look at us like we're crazy. They go, but I can't get through a day without using. And we go, well, that's your problem. And in my opinion, that's one of the main reasons why nobody goes to treatment. And when they go to treatment, why they keep failing is because nobody looks at them and says, look, here's what we need to do. We need to help you manage your life better. I understand every day when you wake up, it's a nightmare and you don't know how to get out of it. And so you pick up a drink at nine o'clock in the morning or 11. I get it. What are your thoughts about? What is it that you really, really struggle with? And then start dealing with the actual problem they have. What I've noticed, and it's not easy work. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying it works 100% of the time. But if you approach them that way, what I've noticed is the vast majority of people stop resisting and they actually want to do the work. And so then you get to be there for the journey with them. That makes total, total sense. Because now for, for those of uh, listeners who are hearing me um, and just high alert, you're going to think um, I all of a sudden have become a full-on, um, um, I don't know, metaphysic, involving metaphysics, <laughs> but everything has a vibration. So yeah. if we, have, we throw crap at a vibration of crap mm. and because we're dealing with crap from uh, our child or our loved one, then yeah. we're just tossing crap back and forth at that same level, different story, but same vibrational level. Yeah. So if we change that vibration by the way we, we approach that individual, then we can make the changes that way. It makes total sense, Dr. Adi. So my question here is, most of the times there is such a huge resistance coming from the the person involved with, um, we'll call it substances, alcohol, uh, it doesn't even have to be substance. I mean, people are sex addicts. People are food addicts. People are, frankly, video addicts, in my opinion. There are people that play videos just to get their brain off of whatever it is that they're running away from. So when they are not ready, what can the support people or the people around them do to get them ready? Is there any magic to that? I love it. So first of all, I think we need to talk about what it is they're ready or not ready for. A lot of people who aren't ready to quit, a lot of people who aren't ready to go to rehab are ready to make their life better. So what if we put our focus there? What if we say, hey, look, you're not ready to quit. I get it. Um, what are you looking to change? What do you want to make a difference in? And what I found is, again, nothing is true 100% of the time, but the vast majority of people will say to you, here's where I am interested in creating change. And then you start helping them with that. And they're very interested because that's something they actually want help with. So Mm -hmm. what we have to do is we have to stop pretending that what we want is what matters. And we have to start (laughs) understanding that – if we want to help the person in front of us, we have to help them with what they want. Like Absolutely. It's, it's like this, right? Do you drive a car? Yeah. Okay. Now, if somebody came up to you one day and said, hey, you have to drive this car. It doesn't even matter what it is. But they go, this is what you have to drive from now on. You'd feel a little resistance. You'd say, well, that's not what I want. I want – I don't like the interior or the color is not exactly what I would pick. Now, every once in a while, of course – if you did that to somebody, the car you showed them would be exactly what they want to drive and they would jump in and be really, really happy. That happens every once in a while. But most of the time, the person would say, well, can I have a different color? Or I need a car with four doors, not two doors. Or 
can I get a convertible? Or I don't really like this brand at all. Or whatever, you know, the gas mileage is terrible. I want something with better gas mileage. They would have some comment. That makes sense because we're asking them to do something they had no role in choosing. But in addiction, what we do to people over and over and over is say, hey, you're drinking too much. You have to go to rehab. And they go, no, I don't. That's not what this is what I need. And we don't listen to them or we tell them they're, they're in denial, et cetera. Um, does that make sense? Yes, it absolutely does. Now, from your perspective, what are some of the things people are doing, the, the supporting people, we'll call it, are doing other than the one that you mentioned that is um, basically not helping the matter? Um, do they... Th- I think a lot of times people throw throw um, materials at these people to show that they love and they care mm. for them. I think I see that a lot. Like the, the enabling kind of concept. Well, it's uh, like, uh, well, you know, yeah, exactly. But without wanting to enable, there is such a emotional roller coaster for mm. both the person involved and the people who are around them. It yeah. just seems like. It, it, they feed off of each other. It's constant disappointment that yeah, that's is taking actually, place. That's that's very true. Um, you know, normally when you're talking the kind of relationships you're talking about, the enabling has been going on for years, maybe even a few decades, and it's sometimes subtle. But the idea is that the person who wants to provide the help can somehow do the work for their loved one, right? Like. You don't have a job. Well, let me get you a place. Um, that's that's okay as long as everything is as long as it's part of a support structure and it's you know it's done in a thoughtful way. But there's nothing that can replace something called agency. And agency is the idea that the person in front of you knows that they are capable of doing things for themselves. Um, it's a, it's a tough balance to be perfectly honest. When I work with wealthier families, it's uh, it's something we definitely have to work on. Because parents that have the means always do try to fix things. But the thing is, they've probably been fixing them for, like I said, years or decades. And, you know, all of us learn through consequences. All of us learn through seeing how what we put into the world comes back to us as. So it's, it's a tough balance. It's not something I can say that is actually easy to figure out because every family has their own standards. But what I would say is if you're going to try to help somebody, make sure that what you're helping them do is leading them in the direction you want them to go in or you think they want to go in and not just smoothing over a negative situation right now. You know, Dr. Adi, one thing that I see happening quite a bit, and this has come from different um, examples I've seen personally, is um, the parent has the fear of the child getting in trouble and maybe even going as far as killing themselves. Sure. And obviously that's every parent's nightmare, I would think. So um, then there is that fear that's really running the engine on the parent's side and avoiding that fear. I, I call that uh, being, uh, being blackmailed by fear. So mm. that fear on the parent's side is what pushes the parent to go beyond what they should be going and have the tough love, so to speak. So what is your recommendation in those instances? It's a constant guilt. And I'm sure the parents are thinking, 
whoa, I mean, what did I do wrong? Did I not pay enough attention? I mean, there is so much blaming going on, which doesn't serve the person well at all, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, it's a catch-22. You know, the catch-22 is that sometimes in order to avoid the fear you have of the, your, the person you love the most doing something really, really terrifying to themselves, you end up putting them in a situation where they end up doing that exact same thing to themselves, right? And so it's not, it's not easy. And I think this is a very important point for families to hear. Um, here's the thing. There is no 100% guarantee of anything. And so there's no way for any parent to ever 100% guarantee that their child is not going to go through so much pain, not going to experience such devastating consequences of their actions that they will die. There isn't. And there's the fear there can be debilitating sometimes. And so what we think we need to do is become so protective that they never can put themselves in that situation. The only problem is sometimes in doing that, you end up making sure that they're not prepared themselves at all to actually deal with the issues that they will need to deal with later in life. And so that's when we get those helicopter parents who just try to solve everything for their kid. And that means the kid can't solve anything for themselves. Um, or just, you know, the emotional maturity of the kid ends up really, really suffering because they're being treated like a child for far, far longer than they should be. So what, where can a parent in that situation, how can that person, that parent change? Uh, so I think it's important to get, I think it's important to get help in situations like that because it's going to be hard for you to navigate as a parent where the changes are that are responsible and where the changes are that just feel like a reaction to the, how angry and resentful you are that your kid's not doing what they you want them to at this moment. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, what, we, what needs to happen in the way that I've worked with a lot of families, a lot of parents in the past is we actually create like a, a roadmap and we say, look, there are going to be rules to what you get now. And if you, if the rules aren't followed, then here are the consequences. And it's not one of those things of, Hey, if I see you leave the house later than I told you, because uh, that's where curfew is, you completely cut off and you're on the street. Um, because that's not where you're coming from right now. And so you have to create a system where, you know, there's a check and balance. Hey, here are the rules. Here's how you're supposed to behave. If you break the, these rules and this is what happens, if you break these other rules, this is what happens. And, and you literally create an agreement. It's kind of the same thing. Look, you have a job, I have a job. It's how we learn to work, right? Most of us as adults learn to work by somebody bringing us under training and saying, here's what you're allowed to do. Here's what you're not allowed to do. Here's what you're expected to do. Here's what you're not expected to do. And if you follow the rules and you do well, you move up. If you don't follow the rules, you don't do well. You either stay in the same place, you go down, or you lose your job. Um, we have this relationship with our kids, but oftentimes we never really created rules. We never... And if we created them, we never maintained them in a consistent manner. Yeah. So, so what? Just, just to not summarize, but put it in a um, um, linear fashion. Yeah. Um, it, it sounds like obviously, instead of the parents taking control and what's right and what's wrong, find out what the child or the loved one this is just an example of parent child it could be a husband and wife what it is that motivates them to want to look forward to and forget about the fact that the whatever substance they're using or whatever act they're doing that is not to the person's approval is just 
to diminish the pain, just like so many people take opiate drugs for their mm. pain, and somehow that's just justified. <laughs> Can I tell you something? I've done this sure. work now with so many couple, with so many families and couples. I've got a kid that I'm thinking of right now. Kid, he's 27 years old, but he's a kid. Um, mm-hmm. When I talk to parents and families, and I make them understand that the way the conversations need to move forward is not, "Hey, did you use today? How much did you use?" Um, I told you not to use. Why are you still using? But instead goes, hey, how are you feeling today? What's, uh, what, are you, what are you thinking about? What's, what's going on in your head? Where well, you're actually interested in the person instead of only identifying whether or not they've broken the rules. Um, the entire relationship in the family changes. I've, again, this family I'm thinking about right now, the kid was taking high, high doses of opiates, you know, like 40, 50, 30 Oxycontins oh a day. Oh my um, gosh. not only is that thousands of dollars every week, <sighs> but he couldn't function. Um, my method of helping them was completely non-traditional. I mean, they even thought I was crazy in the beginning, but they fortunately trusted me. And within three weeks, we had the kid off of drugs, outpatient. He never went to live anywhere, living at home the entire time. Um, instead of, you know, paying 40, 50, 70, 80, a hundred thousand dollars a month for rehab. And, we did it gradually, so he didn't have to quit right away, but he quit gradually. By the way, he definitely hated me at some points in the middle. I always tell every, all my clients, my job is not to be liked by my clients, it's to make their life better. <laughs> and so, but it worked. And he was just here the other day, and we're now talking about him applying back to school. He got kicked out of school at some point in the process. He's now applying back into school. He hasn't used drugs in two months. Living at home, never left the house. Um, so... When you change, you talked about vibration. When you mm-hmm. change the manner in which you approach the, the issue, the way that people respond to you changes, and you end up dealing with a completely different reality. It sounds crazy to some people in the beginning, but I've seen it work over and over and over again. Absolutely. So, the, I mean, not everyone can see you, and obviously you have uh, no matter – what we all have the same number of hours a day yes <laughs> the, that is the, the limiting the factor yeah always i i to- totally get that so how i mean there are there are therapists a dime a dozen in every corner what this country does mm. not lack is doctors and professionals <laughs> so how do you pick i mean um obvi- i always say um like in my own practice i'm like it depends on what your priorities are if you want to solve the problem or if you want your insurance to cover for it those are two separate agendas it. here oh. so with that said um i am confident that people who are in the depth of this disastrous situation are gonna if they have to put a second on their house to go you know find the help, right help they will do that yeah but, but hopefully you don't do have to find? hopefully you don't need yeah, to right absolutely I, I, absolutely so here's but, first of all here's where i think the digital revolution has actually helped us right um you're right i actually talk about this in so i have two workshops that i think are really really relevant for what we're talking about here one is called are you really an alcoholic and the other one is the family sos program for people who are struggling or their family members i think these are amazing starting points. And here's the cool thing about them. I think one is like 97 bucks and the other one is $197. So it's like four to five hours with me for the price of one session, really. Uh, And you never have to schedule it because it's available 24, seven, 365. Now, the reason I think it's important to understand um, what you're looking for is 
back in the day, you would go to the therapist that was nearby, or you would go to the therapist that had an available appointment, or you would go to the therapist that your friend Julie or your, your other friend Mark recommended, because that's all that was available. But we live in an incredibly connected world right now. And so not only are people listening to us probably on their phone right now, and they never would have been able to hear us before, because I've been on the news and I've been on TV and I've been on the radio, but you know, you would have had to catch it when it was live and that's it. Now you have this. And you know, you can have access to world experts, like the people who are best at what they do. And you don't have to pay, you know, my hourly fee is like $500 an hour. You don't have to pay $500 an hour and come sit with me here. You can do that workshop. And like I said, those two workshops are four hours and it's like 250 bucks or something to get both of them. The difference is this. There are a lot of practitioners, but the question is always, what has the person that you're sitting in front of, what have they really done? Like, what have they changed? How have they helped different families? You want to get somebody who has experience in the specific thing you're struggling with. Because, you know, just like there are attorneys, right? There are a lot of lawyers. But you don't want to go to a bankruptcy lawyer if you got caught shoplifting. Because they have no idea how to help you. Yes, they're a lawyer. Yes, they can stand in court for you. But they literally don't understand what's happening. You don't want to go mm-hmm. to a criminal attorney if you're trying to sign a contract for an, for employment. So in the context of the kind of help that we're talking about, you know, having a therapeutic degree is wonderful. I, by the way, I have a PhD in psychology, but I don't have my license. Um, I already talked about my criminal history. That made it really, really hard to get a license. So I work as a coach. There are coaches that do really, really amazing work. You just want to pick somebody who specializes in what it is you struggle with not exactly like you said it, not just somebody that takes your insurance because you can actually cause damage, right? I know I'll never forget this story and it hurts me every time I mention it, but there was a psychologist, an actual psychologist who called my old treatment center. I used to run a rehab and her son was a meth addict and she ended up reading some of my work and calling and saying, I don't know what to do. I've been going to Al-Anon, which is like a 12-step program for the family members and parents of people who are addicted And her son has been a meth addict and homeless for a long time. He came back home and was going to his psychiatrist and she was paying, she wasn't supporting him in a really strong way, but she was paying for his bus passes and she was paying for his medical care, et cetera. And then somebody in her program said, hey, he has to stand on his own two feet. He's got to go get a job. You've got to cut him off. So she cut him off. She stopped paying for his bus pass. She stopped paying for his psychiatrist. Um, and she stopped paying for his health care and he lost it, started using again and went homeless, getting the wrong, getting the wrong advice. She was a psychologist, right? Like you would Mm -hmm. think she would know better, but you know, it's hard when you're the one struggling. And so you want, especially in the field we're talking about right now, this is a life or death kind of a, a thing. And so you want to get help from somebody who's got experience, and I don't mean just experience dealing with it, experience helping people. I don't know who gave her that advice, but is their son, daughter, husband living at home and really, really happy and and successful? If that's true, maybe you can follow their path. I hope it matches what you want. But find a psychologist, find a therapist, find a psychiatrist, find a coach who is really familiar with the specific issues you're struggling with and has had success before. Ask for recommendations, ask for testimonials, ask for evidence that they they know what they're doing. 
And if you have it, nobody can guarantee you success, unfortunately. I can't. Nobody can. Um, but if you found somebody who's really been there before and has tools, then go all in and just follow their advice. And if it works for you, then you won. And if it works a little, get help from somebody else. You know, it's always, for me, it's always about sometimes somebody's techniques, including mine and tactics will get you 50% of the way there and you'll need somebody else's help to get you the other 50%. Absolutely. There's no magic person, I guess. I wish there so was. in that example, I know the example that you gave, that's a great example of tough love. Are you saying that you're against that? Did that, uh, that, did that mother not do the right thing? I don't understand. The kid ended up on the street? Yeah, I don't understand. You don't understand. Love. No, here's the reason why I say that. Like, People mean when they say tough love is having boundaries. But having boundaries is not tough love. One of my favorite mentors, his name is Andrew Tatarski, he's a psychologist in New York. He always says, like, why tough love? Why not just love? Right? Like real love, real responsible love has boundaries. It's okay to have boundaries. You know? Well, those are those were her boundaries. She was doing it, and the kid was uh, still not doing anything. But maybe because that was not efficient. No, no, no. The um, problem was the problem was he was he was actually doing okay. He was going to a psychiatrist appointment. He was using the bus pass to get to his physicians. It was just that somebody somebody told her that she needs to stop supporting her son. Um, I wouldn't do that to somebody I love. If I'm, let's say, you know, let's say that I'm. I'm paying somebody's rent because they've had difficulties, right? Mm -hmm. But they're abiding by the rules. They're doing everything they're supposed to do. I wouldn't one day say, hey, you know, it's time for you to go get, get help. I'm cutting you off. Perhaps add more to the list of to-dos or expectations gradually is the yeah. way to do it. Say I to see. them, hey, um, I need you to start contributing $100 a month. Something. Yeah. Now here, boundaries are incredibly important and we won't be able to get into it here today because it's a, it's a long conversation. Yeah. But real love, real responsible love includes boundaries. That's true for your romantic relationship and it's absolutely true in this context. I'm not at all saying that it should be a free-for-all and somebody should be able to get whatever they need from you whenever they want it just, just because that's not okay. That actually harms the person that you love because it shows them that they don't have to do anything and that there are no consequences for not doing mm -hmm. anything. So yeah. it's, it's, you know, it's not the easiest um, formula always, but boundaries are incredibly important. I just don't, I don't understand why we call it tough love. Like just call it love. It's, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Now, if uh, the, the two uh, workshops that you mentioned, the first one had to do with alcoholism. So is it really for people with alcoholism as their issues? Or is this, is this not um, necessarily for alcoholics? It could be right across the board. The concept is the same. The concept is the same. I give a history of how alcoholism even became a thing. Look, alcoholism is the first addiction we identified with a title that yes. makes sense like yes before we called anybody a drug addict we had alcoholics i think the concepts are exactly the same the idea in that and it's why a lot of actually family members have watched that workshop in order to understand their loved ones better is here's my point what exactly are you saying when you're calling somebody an alcoholic i think a lot of us don't go through that mental exercise um I don't, I don't know if I want to get too deeply into this here. I'll get, I'll get into it a little bit because there are a lot of people on Facebook that fight me on this concept all the time. I have an ad 
on Facebook <laughs> that talks about this concept. And they say, hey, you know, but if you're addicted to drugs, you're an addict. And I say, okay, but that, isn't that kind of like saying that you're, if you're a black person, you're an N-word? I mean, that's kind of what we used to say, right? People in yeah. this country would say, well, why are those, why are those black people so upset? They're black. That's, a, that's the word we use for them is the N-word. Why are they so mad? The reason we're so mad is because it creates shame and it creates stigma and it hurts them and the way they live and their self-concept of who they are. So that's why. You might not get it. You might not understand it. But now there's a lot of research from really respectable researchers and, um, and universities that shows that those names, those titles create shame and stigma and that stigma reduces the probability that somebody will get help. And even if they get help, reduces the probability that they'll stay. So you can keep using the term as long as you don't mind the fact that you're actually hurting the person you're using it with. Or, or the fact that uh, you're trying to solve a problem, but you're adding to the, to the cause of the problem. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. The only people that I know that don't mind the term, the only people that don't mind being called an alcoholic or an addict are people who have been in long-term recovery so they've mm-hmm. got a year sober, five years sober, 30 years sober. And they say, I'm proud of being an addict. And I always said, that's great, but you're not the one I'm dealing with. You have already licked your problem. The person on the street who's struggling right now, they're not proud of being an addict. And if you're serious about trying to help, stop caring about what's good for you and start caring about what's good for the people who are still struggling. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I'm, I've taken so much of your time. This interview's uh, definitely... Hopefully, it's uh, clarified some of the damage that we, as the um, um, the helpers, I hate to call it an helpers. Thank you. I hate to call it an outsiders. <laughs> no, but we're helpers. As helpers, yeah, as helpers, um, uh, you know, the, it clarifies things for us um, out there. And um, I'm I'm so grateful for this opportunity, Doctor Adi. Me and, too. I'd like to, uh, and I will provide all the um, information for people to contact you. How, what's the best way to contact you? You know, I have a website, adjaffe.com is probably one of the easiest ones. Uh, I mm-hmm. also have a podcast like you. Uh, it's called Ignited, and that is spelled I-G-N-T-D, Ignited. Um, I do that with my wife, and I have a recovery part and a relationship part in there. Um those are probably the easiest places to find me. I'm everywhere on social media. So Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, whatever you use. And Dr. Adi Jaffe is my handle on all of those. Great. I thought your handle was something else, though. <laughs> oh, I have, a, I, have, I, have a, I have a hashtag that I use a lot, which yes, is I'll, yes. I'll shorten it as F shame, fill in the F. Um, but yes, that's a big one. I actually wear a bracelet that I've worn for years now, um, that says the exact same thing on my wrist. I'm really big on fighting against shame. And that's, that's one of my biggest things. And you know, that's the, that's the thing that's very attractive to me about you is the fact that, uh, you know, we're so busy trying to polite, be polite that we basically lose, lose the passion and lose the attention. So sometimes we need to go to that extreme just to get people hear the message. So I very much appreciate who you are, how you operate your life based on what I can see on social media and what you've shared on this podcast and other podcasts that I've had the privilege of listening to when you were being interviewed. Thank you so much. And thank you for having me on. Absolutely. Thank you so much and have a wonderful day. You too.